How many of you are uncertain about the future? Okay, there's there's some uncertainty in the room. Um, I I spent most of my career, I guess the first 20 years of my career, um, uh, as a computer programmer. And so I notice when I see things in the news about the tech industry, and this week I saw a lot of um, in news about the tech industry that that made me kind of glad that that I wasn't in that industry anymore. I remember I had some uh, what do you call it PSD from having been through this in the 80s and 90s. So um, so there were a lot of layoffs this uh, this week. Um, Google's announced it was laying off um, 12,000 people, or not Google, but Alphabet, which owns Google. Um, uh, um, Microsoft announced layoffs of 10,000 people. Um, and uh, Amazon said they're going to lay off 18,000 people. And there are other people who've been doing these layoffs. So huge layoffs throughout the tech sector. Um, and there's a bunch of different reasons for it. But um, it did make me glad that I'm not in that particular industry. Um, although today you're going to vote on my terms of call. So um, <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. Um, uh, the way our rules work, you can't lay me off, but you can give me a strong signal you'd like me to resign. So, um, so uh, there are reasons that people can be um, that people can be um, uncertain, and and you know we've been through the last couple of years. Uh, we don't know what the what the future is going to hold. Uh, we don't know what our health is going to be. Of course, we don't know um, what what our economic situation is going to be for those of us who are working. We don't know whether we'll still have a job. We don't know whether our savings will last because of inflation or whatever. There's all kinds of things we don't know about the future. And when we see headlines like that, we might become more a little more anxious um, about them. I mean, honestly, we don't even know if you go to the grocery store, will there be eggs there, right? So... <laughs> So um, there are things in in uh, the the world that make us anxious, and you know you factor in things like uh, the geopolitical situation. You know, you know the the bulletin of the atomic scientists. They move the the hands of the clock closer to midnight um, because of the situation in Ukraine and so forth. So there's all kinds of things that would make us um, anxious or or give us reasons to worry. And um, uh, the the question for us is: Is there any way we can have peace? in an uncertain world. Given the fact that the world is uncertain, and at least to the extent that I can judge, it seems more uncertain now than it was five or ten years ago, is there anything we can do to have peace in an uncertain world? Well, if you are wondering that, you came to the right place, um, if you're a Christian, if you just came here to check us out and see what we believe, um, this is not going to be for you unless you say that sounds like a pretty good deal um, because it's really something that, that uh, Jesus is, is, says that is available to people who put their trust in him, that because of what he has done for us, we can have peace. So our lesson today um, comes to us from the, um, from the, the uh, biography that Luke wrote, but it's found in two of the other... Um, Two of the other uh, biographies as well. There's four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's on all three of the first ones. Uh, John doesn't have this particular story. And it's sometimes called, if you've got a Bible with headings, it's sometimes called the rich young ruler, which is interesting because it's not actually that. There is no biography of Jesus where it's called, uh, where where that phrase is used. Um, uh, We read about a man who, who is a ruler, in Mark's gospel, he's just a man, and in Matthew's gospel, he is rich. So you have to put all three together to come up with rich young ruler. But I will probably stumble and call him a rich young ruler, where Luke only says a ruler. So um, with that, uh, our reading begins on verse 18 of chapter 18. So 
we read a certain ruler, this rich young ruler guy, he comes to Jesus and he asks, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. Now, uh, Jesus is not being coy here. Jesus, uh, we're not sure exactly what Jesus is asking uh, this for, but probably he's saying, what did you mean by good teacher? He's asking him to to th- to reflect what he says. There's um, uh, a lot of writings um, by Jewish rabbis from about 400 BC to about 400 AD, and in all of those, no rabbi ever permits his disciples to call himself good, that they are to call him teacher, but never good teacher. It's something that wasn't done, except about 400, we find a, a rabbi who let his teachers, his students call him good. Everybody else said, no, there's only one good thing in, in our world, and that is God. So, so Jesus is saying, what do you mean by that? Are you saying I'm God? And as Christians, we would say, if so, then you're right. But Jesus is asking him, think that through. Why are you calling me good teacher? Are you just flattering me or, do you really have a sense that I am somebody who can who can give you um, the answer you're looking for? So Jesus says that, but then he goes on immediately and he says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. So Jesus reels off a handful of commandments that illustrate really the, the, um, the Ten Commandments, which in turn are kind of chapter headings for the, the entire law. So everything in Torah, everything in the 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 Jewish law, Jesus is summing up with this handful of commandments. He says, you know what they are, do them. And the ruler says, I've, I've done that. I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. And at this point, we might say, okay, well, then why are you worried? Why did you come to Jesus saying, what must I do? You know, you've kept the law. Now, now Jesus, in, in other places, Jesus says, you may be kidding yourself about how well you're keeping the law. Right? Jesus says, the law is a lot harder to keep than you think. But Jesus doesn't challenge him here. Jesus lets that hang. And it raises the question, well then, if you keep the law, if you've done everything the law requires, why did you come to him? Why did you come? What What is it you hope to achieve by coming to Jesus? And the answer is, of course, he's anxious. He's not confident either that he's done the the law properly or that there's something else he's got to do. He's he's saying, well, I'm not sure of something. Either I'm not sure that, that I've really done it right or I'm not sure that God can be trusted. I'm not sure that God isn't holding out. There's like a special, you know, footnote or, or codicil that's been added to the law someplace and I missed that footnote or that God is just going to spring it on me at the end. And I'm going to say, well, wait a minute. I didn't know about that. God says it's too bad. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So he is, he is saying he's betraying. He's got some anxiety about something. Something in his world makes him uncertain and either because he's, he's not confident in himself. Or more likely, he's not confident that he really understands what God wants. And so he goes to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, good, good teacher, what do you want? Or what can you tell me what it is that God really wants? What does God really want? Because I've been doing the things God has told me to do and I'm not confident. So tell me what it is that God really wants. And this is 
this is the 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 problem that even somebody like him, even somebody who has who has obeyed the law, somebody who, as we find out later, has has material wealth, um, he's got sources of of uncertainty that you and I might have sources of uncertainty and say, well, well, you know, I don't know if there's going to be eggs in the grocery store. We we have uncertainty like that. But even this guy who's got everything, he's uncertain. And the reason for that, according to the um, the theologian Augustine. Um, 400 A.D., St. Augustine, as he's called, Augustine wrote a book called The Confessions, and in it, he said this. He said, our heart is restless until it rests in God. That even though this guy has done everything he's supposed to do, he's, he's obeyed the law, he's not worried about his material prospects, he's still anxious. And the reason for that is none of those can substitute for God. He's anxious, he's uncertain, he's restless until his heart can actually rest in God. So, he's gone to Jesus to get help with that. But but that's not probably all he's done. Probably he's done more than that. Probably he's done what most of us do. When we are anxious, when we're restless, we don't simply say, okay, well, I'm going to go straight to God about this problem. Instead, we say, well, maybe there's a solution. Maybe, maybe, you know, yes, my job is about to lay me off, but maybe I can find another job. Maybe I can retrain for a different field. Maybe I can find a new industry that is not subject to, you know, the economic cycle. Um, I can, I can solve this problem somehow. I can get a loan from my brother. You know, I can, I, I can solve this problem somehow, that there is some solution to my uncertainty other than going to God. Short of going to God, that that you know the doctor tells me I've got you know a, a real serious problem, and so I say, well, I'll find a different doctor, or uh, I'll find a different uh, uh, remedy that that I can find something else that I can put my trust in rather than go to God. That we are consistent, continually coming up with new ways of of not putting our faith in God, of finding something. In the created order, something something beneath God, something that is not transcendent. If God is transcendent, if God is above and beyond everything that has been made, we look for something in the part of the the uh, reality that is made. So we look at the created order and we say, maybe there's something here that can solve my problem. And uh, commenting on this, the Protestant reformer, he the, the this thing looking for something in the in the um, in the created order that can solve our problem, something that we can trust is idolatry. That's the Bible word for it. It means, you know, we, we may think of a, an idol as, you know, something that's carved, you know, carved out of stone or gold or something like that, and it, you know, has some weird shape or something, and we think of it as that's an idol. But really an idol is anything that is made, anything that is part of the created universe that that we might trust. So it's a, a different diagnosis. That would be an idol, right? Um, a, a different job. That could be an idol too. Um, a bigger savings account. There's there's all kinds of ways we can be idolatrous without ever bowing down to some carved you know carved figure. So um, commenting on this um, in the 1500s, the Protestant reformer um, uh, John Calvin he said the human heart is an idol factory, and it's running three shifts. Because, because as soon as, as soon as we find that one idol is not trustworthy, we are 
immediately on the lookout for the next one. We we look hard to find the next idol. That is just nature. Our nature is to say, well, okay, if this problem presents itself, you know, the thing I've been trusting in, you know, my bank account, my my health, uh, my, my relationships, that, that if that falls through, well, I'm immediately off to the races looking for a new thing that I can put my trust in. So the heart, the human heart, is an idol factory. It's restless because it doesn't have a, a, a right relationship with God. It hasn't put its trust ultimately in God, so it's restless because it knows that the created order is untrustworthy. But it keeps looking for the part of the created order that is trustworthy. So that's that's the dilemma that Jesus is identifying. That's why this young man, this young ruler, who is rich, is anxious because because. He's he's got access to all the things in the created order he might want, but he's still anxious. So when Jesus hears him, when Jesus hears him say, "I've done everything, I've I've obeyed the law, I've done everything God wants," Jesus says, "Well, there's only one thing left you need to do. There's only one thing you lack, and that is lacking. You lack anything to lack. You've got everything, and so." You keep trying one thing after another. If you, if something doesn't work, you've got the resources to try the next thing. You can, you know, you can travel, you know, you can say, well, maybe I'm just bored. Maybe I just need to travel more. You can, you can, um, you can have a hobby, you know, I, I just need a new snow machine, right? Jesus is saying that whatever, whatever it is you're thinking about, he's saying you don't have that problem. So you just keep trying this infinite, infinite number of things that are stretched out in front of you. He says, what you lack is lacking anything. So he says, here's how you solve that problem. Give everything you've got away to the poor. See, the poor have an advantage over the wealthy. Now, um, I know none of us are wealthy, right? You know, we're all in the top three or four percent of uh, global wealth, but put that to one side. None of us are wealthy, right? We are, I mean, we, we know who's wealthy. Um, but but the poor, the poor have an advantage over the wealthy, and that is that, that I guess we're going to say we, since we're all poor, um, we spend the money, right? The wealthy, you know, they swim in it like Scrooge McDuck or whatever it is wealthy people do with their money. I don't even know, right? Because I'm not wealthy. They can, can try one thing after another. They, they can do things. Uh, they, they have that money to do stuff with. But if you're poor, you just go and spend it. You blow it. And then it's no longer a temptation. You're back to the situation of, of, you know, you, you, you paid your utility bill or you, you bought some eggs. So you no longer have that money and the problem is now solved for you if you're poor. So, so Jesus says, give it to the poor. They can use it and it won't be a threat to them, right? Perfect solution. And then Jesus says, you'll have treasure in heaven. So, problem solved. And then he says, okay, and with that problem out of the way, come and follow me. And the man becomes very sad. He becomes sad because he is extremely rich. He realizes, when it's put that way, that I'm going to trust in my wealth more than God. That, that there may be, you know, something is, is weighing on me. Something is making me anxious. Even though I think I've obeyed all the law, even though I've got all of my needs met, something is making me anxious. And now with the, with the choice in front of me, what are you going to trust 
to solve that anxiety, to relieve that restlessness. Money or God, he says, money. And so he is sad. Uh, the other two biographies, Matthew and Mark, they say he leaves. Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke kind of leaves us on edge. What would you do? Right? He's kind of letting us think that one over. But um, in the other biographies, he, this man goes away. And Jesus comments on it. Jesus says, it is very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. And then he says this, and it's a shame he said this. You know, Jesus, I, I'm going to second-guess Jesus here. He shouldn't have added this part because people misunderstand it. It says, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. How many of you have ever heard a sermon where the, the preacher said, well, you see, in Jerusalem at that time, there was a gate in one of the city walls called the eye of the needle, and um, that a camel could go through it, but he had to get down on his knees, right? First of all, camels don't move on their knees. Secondly, they, they don't know how to crawl. Um, secondly, um, there was no, to the extent that our historical records are at all accurate, there was never a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And thirdly, that story dates from the 8th century. So what happened is after seven centuries of people really being bugged by this, they made a, somebody, somebody just made up this story and it, it made him feel better, right? He was trusting in a created thing, which is um, my ability to come up with a story that will make me a little less anxious. So that's not true. Jesus says what it means, right? A camel can't get through the eye of a needle. The biggest animal that that they had in that area and the smallest thing people had any kind of ordinary ordinary access to. The biggest thing can't get to the smallest thing. Um, and he says the problem with wealth is it is it it, it is an extraordinarily alluring idol. That it is such a great idol that even people who don't have it want it. That's how good a idol wealth is. People who have it, I mean, you know, think about the lifestyles of the rich and famous. You know, how many of them have great lives? You know, it seems like every day I, I read, I read in the, the news about some rock and roller from the 60s or 70s dying. And, you know, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I'm getting there too, right? But they die. They may be famous. They may have a catalog um, that they just sold to somebody for a zillion dollars. But you know what? They die too. That The fact that they're wealthy doesn't solve their problems. And yet, I look at them and I say, man, I'd like to have what they've got. But, you know, they die. They, they get divorced. They have all the problems people have. Jesus says, wealth... Of all of the idols, wealth is a particularly alluring one because even people who don't have it are uh, subject to its lure. So the people who are listening, they say, well, then who can be saved? If even this guy with all the advantages, right, he's got leisure, right? If you're, if you are a tanner, if you're a, a shepherd, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, things people did to support themselves in those days. If you're that, you can become ritually unclean in the course of your work. And then, if you're rich, you can take tomorrow off and you'll go to the temple or whatever, and and you can solve your problem of being ritually unclean. But if you're poor, you're back out in the field the next day doing the same thing. So he's saying, well, if this guy who's got all the advantages, he can actually carry out the law in all of its intricacy. He's got all the advantages he needs. If he can't save himself, who can be saved? And Jesus says, exactly, 
Jesus says, what's impossible for humans is possible for God. It is impossible for you to build an idol that you can lean on, that, that there is no idol that you can create or you can be told about. There's nothing in the created order that will not ultimately collapse if you put your trust in it. If you lean your life against anything in the created world, you're making a mistake. So any idol is at least one too many. About 80 years ago, the, uh, the English writer C.S. Lewis wrote something that's very hard for, it was very hard for me to understand. So I actually cracked open a dictionary. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, if you give God an inch and he will take an L. And I didn't know what an L was. What, any, does anyone know what an L is? You know, today we say, take the L means you take the loss, right? He did not mean that. He says, if you give God an inch, he will take an L. Now in, in American English, what do we say? We say, if you give me an inch, I'll take a mile, right? That's So I was thinking, well, maybe it's a long distance. Well, it turns out an L is an arm. So so an L is your arm. So particularly from, from this finger to this elbow. So um, that's that's a cubit in some languages. But in, in uh, archaic English, it's, it's an L. And it's completely lost to us, except that this thing where it bends is the elbow. So there you go. All right. So... I did not make that up. So, but I couldn't resist telling you to show you what I got from my work. So let me put it this way. He says, he says, Jesus is saying anything else with humans, it is impossible. If you have put your faith in anything else, you're wasting your time because only with God is it possible. And that's what God says. If you give me an inch, he will take the rest. If you, if you say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with this thing, but I also want to trust in my money. I also want to trust in my health. I also want to trust in my relationships. I want to trust in my uh, national sovereignty, right? Whatever it is you might want to trust, if it's part of the created order, God will say, good start, let me have the rest too, okay? Because I will not solve your problem alongside of that thing you're putting your trust in. I'm not going to share credit with an idol. So if you give God an inch, he will take an L. He will take the rest. So, only God, he says, what is possible, what is impossible with humans is possible with God. So only God can do it. And only God, God alone will do it. God will do it by himself, not without any help from our idols. So Peter says, well, okay, wait, we've done that. Peter says, look, we left everything we own and followed you. And Jesus says, I assure you that anyone who's left house, husband, wife, brothers, sisters, parents, or children, because of God's, sorry, lost, because of God's kingdom will receive many times more in this age and eternal life in the coming age. Jesus divides the time into this current age and the age to come. And he says, you'll be rewarded in both ages. And Jesus leaves it at that. He doesn't say how. You'll get many times more. Does he mean many times more family? Some, sometimes people think that. If you belong to a church, you, you know, there's a reason we call each other brother and sister. We don't do that enough, but we should. That's the, the New Testament language as we say, you know, I have brothers and sisters. Maybe that's what Jesus is meaning. Maybe not. In the other two biographies, uh, Matthew and Mark, they add houses and fields. So maybe Jesus is talking about some kind of material material reward. I don't know. 
Maybe yes, material rewards, but not in this age. I, you know, he, he's he's vague. He doesn't tell us. He simply assures us there will be rewards. Nobody will feel gypped. Nobody will feel like they've been robbed. So what what um. So there's the solution. Give up whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're leaning your 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 life on. Do that. Now, how do you feel? You're going to rush out. Is everybody going to rush out and do that? Have I been so persuasive in opening up the word of Jesus Christ so that you now can leave here and never trust in an idol again? Never, never run that second shift to make more idols in your heart. Can you do that? Probably not because it is frightening. It is frightening to say, I'm going to trust exclusively in God. I'm not going to lean on anything except God. That's a very frightening thing because we can see our money. Right? We can see, you know, well, they can measure our health, right? It's tangible in a way that God is not. So it's frightening. It's performing without a safety net. But Jesus says, come and follow me. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I will be with you through this. So in the darkest valley, God is with you. This is what the psalmist said, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. So in the darkest valley, God is with us. Jesus says that I will be with you. You can follow me and I will come alongside you in the face of all the things that make you afraid. So that is the message. Jesus is saying, yes, it's going to be frightening to you and I will be with you. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the first question you could ask is, what are your idols? Or what are your idols today? What are your idols lately? And a good way of answering that question is, what would make you turn away sad? What, what, you know, it's hard to say, well, this is my idol, you know, I've got a little shrine at home and I, you know, bow down, light a candle, I do all the things right. We probably don't have that kind of idol. But ask yourself, if Jesus told you, if Jesus appeared to you as you went out to the parking lot today and said, hey, you only lack one thing, get rid of blank. What would you be most likely to say? Not sure about that, Lord. <laughs> Let me. I'm thinking, right? So that's a good place to ask. Where are where are my idols? And just say, well, what would I most like to? Lo- what would I most dislike losing? And then say, but what if I did? What if I did? And confront that fear. The the psychologist uh, Carl Jung wrote this. He said, what you most need to find will be found where you least want to look. So I encourage you to look in the places that are the most disturbing, the places that are most unsettling, to say, maybe I have been trusting in money. Maybe I need to figure out what I can do with that. How can I transfer my trust from money to God? Maybe I've been trusting in my health. Maybe I've been trusting in a particular relationship that 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 person will never let me down. Ask yourself, do I really, do I really trust in them? Have I, not in the sense of it's a good thing to trust people, but in the sense of I'm counting on them, that my life will be over if, if this thing breaks down. And then figure out a way to try not depending on them, because what you most want will be found where you least want to look. This 
story is basically Christianity. It's what the church is called to, to demonstrate to the world, to show that, yes, God is with us, that the reason we were able to put our trust in, in God, the reason that the early church was able to walk away from family and friends, um, to walk away sometimes from their lives, was because they trusted God. So the church is called to be demonstration, a demonstration of God's trustworthiness. So um, as we as we continue in our worship today and as we uh, move on to our annual meeting, you might be thinking about how can the church be a dem- demonstration in the world of God's trustworthiness. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we give you thanks for this message, um, for alerting us to the reality that so many things in this world that cannot bear the weight of being an idol are nevertheless, that that we make idols unwittingly. And in particular, Lord, how often we trust in the allure of wealth. So, Lord, we ask you to help us to give you that first inch and then let us be willing to give you the rest as well. Confident that you will be with us and that our reward will be more than we could ask or imagine. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.